Here we are, another week of reading through the New Testament. This is week number 51. One more week, and then after this, and we are, we are done. We have done a full year of reading through the New Testament, uh, reading uh, and, and then doing these podcasts and, and uh, walking through the Bible together. I hope it's been encouraging to you. I hope you've grown um, as we've done this, um, and we're, we're still not done. Uh, but we're, we're getting close, and uh, we're going to be heading into the Old Testament um, in the new year. Um, so uh, that will be a lot of fun. Look for those new um, uh, reading plans uh, and what we're going to be covering. And we're going to have a podcast to go along with that as we go through the, the Old Testament, the narrative portions of the Old Testament. Um, so like Genesis all the way through. Uh, it'll be basically like Second Chronicles and then uh, maybe Ezra. And maybe Nehemiah. I'd have to go back and relook at what I've done, uh, what we've put together, and such. But it should be a lot of fun and uh, very interesting. Um, and so, if you have any ideas for the podcast about what we could do to improve this, uh, maybe if there's something that would be more helpful, uh, let me know so we can work on this. And um, and this, I want this to be the most beneficial it can to you, um, and uh, the most helpful to you as you read through the scriptures and study them, and as we do that together as a church. So we are here now in Revelation chapter 13 through 17. And um, we, we've looked at these, uh, uh, the, the fight between the dragon and the woman and the child who's born from the woman and now the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, which is us, believers in Christ. Uh, then chapter 13 turns and we are, we are introduced in chapter 13 to two different beasts. Um, this is very interesting. In Revelation chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, John says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Now, right away, first of all, it's very important to be reminded that in the sea, uh, the sea in the uh, whole Bible, the Old Testament going into the New, the sea is pictured, is pictured uh, in a very negative way in the Bible. It's a place of chaos, of unruliness, of... Uh, of where, where evil can come from. So you think about um, how even at creation, the spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit is there bringing order to the world, right? Because if it had stayed as a, just a water there, the picture is um, the Holy Spirit would have been bad, but the Holy Spirit comes and transforms this and uh, brings it into order and um submission and, and, a, and a beauty. Um, uh, similarly, whenever we look here at, um, when we think about Noah, what happens? Well, water, the, the flooding, the seas, the oceans are pictured there as the means of destruction. They're pictured as a means of chaos, of, of uh, whereas before the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters and brought about light and goodness and, 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 um, and created the world in love. Well, the opposite of that is Noah and the flood. Whenever God preserves Noah, but the rest of the world is basically decreated, destructed, destroyed um, by water. Now, God saves Noah 
through water. So the same water that brought about destruction upon the world and was a sign of judgment is also the way in which uh, through the ark, Noah is saved. And so we're told that that flood actually pictures to us and was a pre-symboling to us of baptism. And then later on, you have the sea where um, uh, the Israelites go through the Red Sea when they're running away from the Egyptians. And the sea there again, right? The Lord is the one who can blast the sea apart and tame its unruly waves. And he brings his people safely through the waves. But the same waves that he brings his people safely through are the same waves and waters that bring about the destruction of Pharaoh's army. And we see this throughout the Bible, um, that, that water. I mean, think again about Jonah. Think about Jonah, right? He is thrown into the sea. He goes down. He thinks he's going to die. And the Lord saves him out of that chaos. And that's what happens, too, when the Lord Jesus walks on water. He's not simply walking on water. He's walking on the sea. And he's showing again that he is the one who rules over the chaos and evil and the forces that would destroy us. It really is more of a picture of of what God did with the flood with Noah and then bringing his people through uh, the Red Sea in Egypt. That's really what Jesus is showing. I'm the same God who did all of that. The same God who flooded the earth and saved his people, the same God who destroyed the Egyptians but brought his people safely through the waves is the same God who still rules over the sea and saves who? He sa- Notice what he does. He's, he's, he rules the, he's calms the waves when he's in the boat. And then one time when he walks on the water, walks on the sea, he saves Peter when Peter says, Lord, save me. And he saves them. And so that's who he is. But I'm just saying, so whenever you see the word see here in Revelation chapter 13, remember that. Remember that the point here is not necessarily to say, well, where, where are all the seas at on the map of the world? The point here is the beast comes out of the sea. The sea is consistently pictured in the scriptures as an evil, chaotic, disorderly place. And so it makes sense that this beast would come out of this cesspool, so to speak, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So important to note that much of this that John's writing is taken from and a reworking of uh, Daniel chapter Daniel's um, uh, revelation in Daniel chapter 7 uh, where Daniel sees similar beasts and and, and it's not the exact same but that it, it's the same imagery in many ways but second of all notice there's two beasts uh, there's the first beast here that rises out of the sea. Then we're told about a second beast that rises out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. Um, and so we see these two beasts. This is also, um, as I've in my study seeing, that this is also hearkening back to Job. I don't know if you remember, but Job, whenever God is speaking to him, uh, is reminded and told about there's two evil beasts, behemoth and leviathan. And these two beasts are meant in God, when God speaks to Job about them and is basically saying, can you tame these? Can you solve these problems? Can you bring these beasts into order? And there's a very good argument to be made because sometimes people have made the argument that these beasts and Job are um, maybe dinosaurs of sorts or some other real physical creature in this world. 
But there's also a very good case to be made that these are spiritual beings, ultimately, um, because actually Leviathan is pictured in uh, Revelation, or not Revelation, Isaiah 27, I believe, as a dragon with, or, or maybe a serpent in water. Huh right again. And so, uh, and, and of course, Satan is that ancient serpent, that great dragon, uh, of course, again, associated with the evil of water. Um, and the, the picture in the whole Bible is consistently of the forces of darkness. And so we've got, we've got three different beasts. We already have two different beasts and the, we also have the great dragon. And so there's also connections between these two beasts and the book of Job. And God is telling Job, can you tame, can you solve the problem of evil? Do you think you can really tame these beasts? And ultimately we see what happens in the New Testament in the revelation of John, that those beasts that, that God was showing to Job and those beasts that, that have opposed Christ and his kingdom are brought under submission to Jesus Christ. Also notice the sec first beast and the second beast and the dragon. They're they're kind of um they're trying to imitate and ape uh, the Trinity. It's almost there's three of them, right? The dragon, the first beast, and the second beast. They even seem right to uh, the first beast seems to have a mortal wound and heals and uh, and is recovered. And in a sense, what they're doing is they're they're trying to imitate to mimic. The work of Christ, and does isn't that what Satan does? He always comes as a he clothes himself as a messenger of light, as an angel of light. Paul tells us that, um, and so that's exactly what he's doing here. He's trying to uh, deceive and to uh, to to oppose God's people, but also doing it in such a way that he is um, imitating the true God, and that's what idolatry does. So we have the first beast, the second beast, and we're talking about, we've also got uh, this, this uh, interesting statement here where we learn about the, uh, the sign of the beast, the number of the beast. And it says here, eventually, um, where are we going to read at here? Yeah, it says, verse 16, also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, it's very important to keep reading a couple verses into the next thing. Uh, the uh, really just verse one of chapter 14. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So notice the mark of the beast. And this has been a big thing. You probably have heard all sorts of theories, uh, different interpretations about what is this mark? What does this mean? What is John trying to teach us here? And I think it's very important to be reminded Notice there's a mark also that God's people have. So there's two different categories of people. There's those who follow, and really this goes back to Genesis 3.15, as so many things do. We have the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. There's two different families. Those who follow the seed of the serpent and who are part of that, who are like Cain. And those who are part of the seed of the woman, who uh, follow Christ and who are like Abel and who are like Enosh. And so who are we going to be? Are we going to follow the woman uh, like we saw in Genesis chapter 12 and this child that she gives birth to? Or are we going to follow the great dragon, the serpent? It goes back to Genesis chapter 3, 15, chapter 3, verse 15. It's really just tracing the same exact ideas there. 
And notice both of these both of these groups have a mark on them. The mark of the of man is put on the number of a man is put on the forehead. It says uh, this number on the right hand or the forehead of all of these people who follow the beasts who are part of the seed of the serpent. But then on the other hand, those who follow and who are part of the seed of the woman, those who are redeemed, the 144,000, which is a picture of, of, of the whole people of God, the whole Israel of God, God's people, the elect, the church of all ages. They also have the name of God put on their foreheads. And this again is hearkening back to, I believe, Ezekiel, where uh, God sends an angel in to execute judgment, I believe, and he puts the name on their foreheads. He puts the name. It reminds us of the priest in the Old Testament. Remember what the priest did whenever he would wear the turban? What was on his head on the turban? The name, holy is holy to the Lord. And so similarly, just like the priest had that holy to the Lord over his head, uh, so similarly do we when we are believers. We have, we have a seal, the spirit of God. We are marked spiritually speaking. It doesn't mean that we have to go and it doesn't mean that um, in the next age, we're going to have a literal tattoo on our foreheads or in heaven, the saints of God. Once you get into heaven, everybody gets a tattoo on their heads. I don't think that's what this is trying to say. I think what it's saying is the name of God, all of his blessings, all of his favors, and we are marked as his. We are spiritually speaking, we are branded as belonging to Christ. We are branded. That's what our baptism is in a sense, by the way. It really is a branding where God brands us with his name, puts his name on us visibly, which is a sign of what he does invisibly by the spirit of God when the Holy Spirit applies the blood of Christ to our hearts. So we've got these two different things. Now, this brings up the question about this this whole mark of the beast. And I want to read uh, something to you from uh, Chad Bird. He's got this article called The Number 666 and God's Merciful Math. Uh, Listen to this, and I think this will be helpful as we think about this passage. He says, The number 666 is in Revelation has been interpreted in a myriad of ways. To whom does it apply? Is it a reference to a particular man or humanity in general? In this article, Chad Bird describes how 666 is related to God's math of mercy in the Messiah. In Revelation, John says that the number of the beast is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Throughout history, this number has been identified with everyone from the Roman Emperor Nero to the Prophet Muhammad to, weirdest of all, President Ronald Reagan. John says 666 is the number of a man. The Greek phrase, however, could also be translated It is the number of humanity, that is, not a particular individual. It's the number of a fallen and failing humanity that reflects the twisted image of the idolatrous beast rather than the image of God. Throughout Revelation, we encounter recurring sevens. Seven is God's number. It refers to completeness, perfection, totality. The Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is 777, if you will. But there's also an unholy trinity, aping the true God. It's the unholy trinity of the dragon, Revelation 12, the beast from the sea, Revelation 13, 1 through 10, and the beast from the earth, Revelation 13, 11 through 18. Their number is six because it falls short of seven. It lags behind. It's lacking. It symbolizes earthly imperfection. As G.K. Beale notes, the repetition of six three times indicates the completeness of sinful incompleteness found in the beast. 
the beast epitomizes imperfection while appearing to achieve divine perfection. In other words, the evil trinity 666 apes the holy trinity 777, but always falls short and fails. But 666 has also fallen humanity's number. Created on the sixth day, humanity soon squandered the gifts of God by worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Now all those who worship untrue gods, who fear and love and trust in things more than the Lord, bear the number 666. They mirror the not perfect, failing gods they worship. They image in their lives, thoughts, words, and actions the very imperfection, incompleteness, and darkened image of the gods whom they adore. The number 666 thus encapsulates everything anti-God in the world and in idolatrous human hearts. When Jesus is born, God puts this into motion his strange, merciful math. He becomes his own image. He who crafted humanity in his own image and likeness becomes a human himself. The Son of the Father, who is the image of the invisible God, becomes the Son of Mary too. God becomes man, the Creator a creature. When we see Jesus, we see the fullness of God made manifest. As Jesus tells Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And when we see Jesus, we see our humanity made perfect. The Christ child is the only perfect, complete, and flawless human ever born into this world. Christ is the perfect seven born into a world of imperfect sixes. The, uh, the six of our twisted fate, of, excuse me, the six of our twisted idolatrous hearts meets the seven of his heart wholly devoted to his father. The six of our dirty shame meets the seven of his glorious joy. The six of our far from perfect, incomplete, shattered lives meets the seven of his divine and human perfection. The six of the gods of this world meet the seven of the God-made man who comes to overthrow them. Our 777 God so loved this 666 world that he sent his son to work his math of grace and mercy. What we lacked, he added. Where we were incomplete, he completed us. Where we were falling and failing and falsely worshiping in our 666 lives, Jesus came to add his beloved one to our lives to bring us into the 777 life of the Holy Trinity. The Father's math is simple and profound. In this one child, one Savior, one perfect human, he takes the six of our lives and adds one Jesus to them. We become the seven that mirrors him. As we are joined to him, we leave behind the six of idolatry to enter the seven of true worship. We are made whole, the humans the Lord wants us to be, in this perfect human who draws us into the 777 life of the Trinity. In Christ, gone is the mark of the beast emblazoned on our foreheads, to be replaced by the name of our Father written on our foreheads. We are tattooed as God's own, those who bear his name, his number, his zealous and vivifying love. That is God's math, who deep sixes all evil and idolatry in his son to usher us into the 777 of his divine and undying love, or excuse me, life. That is really helpful, I think, because um, so much of the time we get lost in speculation um, that I don't think is that helpful. Um, and whenever we take these, when we when we're able to step back and read the book of Revelation 
for what it is, which is uh, a portion of very symbolic and apocalyptic literature um, with many pictures and symbols. We're meant to stand back and take in the imagery of what's going on here to have, in, in a sense, it's, it's helpful to have an imagination when you read the book of Revelation, because you need to be able to see the pictures mentally in your heads of, of a dragon, of a beast with horns, and of a second beast, and uh, one coming out of the sea, one coming out of the earth, and then we think about the number 666. Um, these things are not meant to be taken in, the, in a sense of, uh, they're meant to be interpreted literally in the sense in which we would interpret uh, these pictures the way we're supposed to, but it doesn't mean that we go around and the, there's two different kinds of literalism, isn't there? There's a literalism where we take things the way that the writer intended them to be taken. And then there's also a way in which we try to take things literally to the point to where we should be literally looking for a beast with 10 horns and coming out of the sea and all of these things. We're not supposed to go do that. These are symbolic images meant to communicate divine truth to us about life in this world and the life to come. Um, so we need to, we, whenever we interpret these things symbolically, where it's not that we're taking them, uh, we're not just uh, discarding uh, the, uh, the word of God because the word of God wants us to take these things symbolically and spiritually, I think. So and when we go back then to the 666 number, remember it's the number of humanity, it's the number of man. And seven is always pictured in Revelation and the whole Bible as a complete number because God himself is complete. And he erases the 666 from us, the, the, the mark of, of humanity, of sinful, idolatrous, weak, and guilty humanity, and instead puts the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit upon us, symbolized in baptism, uh, but marking a spiritual reality that is given to us in the gospel through the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, second of all, then, we, I'm going to read a second thing here. This is from Horatius Bonar uh, from Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, because eventually we have the Lamb, uh, the 144,000. They are singing. And then in verse 6, it says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And this is what Horatius Bonar has to say about this. He says, This worldwide proclamation of the glad message has been going on for ages. It is to be wider and louder and more urgent as the end draws near. The gospel is to be preached to all nations for a witness ere the end come. The proclamation is made by an angel, an angel flying in mid-heaven, the position of the sun at noon, that all may see and hear. Angels in this book are representatives of the invisible agencies at work on the earth. They are living and personal agencies through invisible, though invisible, not dead, mute laws, but superhuman powers, setting in motion the whole machinery of the world. And in the case of the present angel, the special machinery for the promulgation of the everlasting gospel. This book of the Revelation, like Daniel and Zechariah, takes us within the veil that hides the material from the spiritual, the human from the superhuman. It gives us the inner or supernatural side of church history, the secret springs and invisible agencies which produce events and facts, changes for good or evil. It gives us a glimpse of the true laws of nature, or at least of those living powers and processes by which these laws are regulated and made to subserve the Creator's purpose. It shows us that angels have far more to do with our world and its history than we suppose. It keeps before us what is so much needed in our day, the supernatural world of intelligence and life and strength outside of ours, yet quite as real and true. 
closely, though visibly invisibly connected with us and operating at all points, animate and inanimate, spiritual and physical, upon the course of things in this lower sphere of ours. These ministering spirits, Hebrews 1.14, have far more numerous and various ministries in connection with earth and its history than we usually ascribe to them. This angel is seen preaching. He has the evangel to evangelize, as the words are literally, making the good news known. Not that he actually preaches as men do, both by stirring up human agencies and in other more secret ways communicating it to men. Satan and his angels work for evil in the dissemination of error, the sowing of tares, the inventing of strong delusions. And why should it be thought incredible that good angels might, in their sphere of good, do the like service for truth and righteousness? How Satan tempted Christ, how he made Ananias lie to God, how he sowed the tares, how how he leavens the world with error, how he beguiles us with his subtlety, we know not, but he does so. Just as the law was given by angels, as the word was spoken by angels, as the angel testified these things in the churches, so this angel in mid-heaven may be understood as proclaiming the everlasting gospel. Angelic lips may not be heard, but human lips, set in motion by agencies which I hath not seen, may proclaim it. There is here a new proclamation of an old thing, a repromulgation on a wider circle of the everlasting gospel in the last days, just before the great act of judgment is consummated. First of all, look at this, the gospel. It is a glad message from God to man, good news from heaven to earth. In it, we have not man speaking to God, but God to man. Not earth crying to heaven, but heaven to earth. It is love descending, not love ascending. It is the gladdest of all glad tidings that ever came to earth. It is the true good news. It is good news of God's free love. To be good news, they must be the, they must be the news of love. And for that love to be available or accessible to the sinner, it must be absolutely and unconditionally free. God's free love is the very essence and marrow of the gospel, and it is as large as it is free. It's also the good news of God's great gift. God gave his son, and the son gave himself. Here is a gift beyond all measure and price, an unspeakable gift. Of this, the gospel is the glad message. It's also the message of God's propitiation for sin. It was not a mere gift, but a gift which was to be a propitiation, an atonement, a sacrificial gift, the gift of a substitute and surety. One special part of the value and suitableness of this gift, that which made it so preeminently a gift of sinners, was its sacrificial character. It was an offering for sin. It contained cleansing and reconciling blood. Yes, Christ is the propitiation for our sins. God hath set him forth as a propitiation. This is the very gladness of the glad message. Fourthly, it's a message of God's righteousness. He is the righteousness of God, and he was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We bring glad tidings of a divine righteousness in preaching the gospel of the grace of God. Righteousness for the unrighteous, yea, for the most unrighteous of the sons of men. It's a gospel, lastly, of God's kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is its special designation. It is good news of a kingdom and of the new and living way, and of the open gate into that kingdom for sinners. There is a glorious kingdom. There is free access to it. Its gates are open. God bids us welcome. This is our gospel. Enter in, O man, O sinner, into the kingdom of God.
Secondly, it's not simply the gospel, though. It's the everlasting gospel. We read of eternal or everlasting salvation, eternal or everlasting redemption, and here is the same word applied to the good news concerning these. First of all, its past is everlasting. It came forth from the bosom of him who from the only begotten Son came. It is the embodiment of his eternal purpose. It was hidden in the eternal ages, and from these it has come out to us. It is no new thing to God, no unexpected thing devised to meet a sudden emergency. It is from everlasting, like the love and grace out of which it sprang. Secondly, its future is everlasting. It is forever and ever. Its gladness is forever. Its provisions last forever. And what it does for those who believe it, it does forever. The eternal future is filled with the trophies and bright with the splendors of this glorious gospel. Thirdly, it is illimitable. It extends on all sides, through all space, as well as through all time. It centers the cross. Its circumference is nowhere, or rather everywhere, round the whole universe of God. Fourthly, it is unchangeable. Like him of whom it brings good news, it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is without variableness or shadow of turning. One gospel, only one, yet that one sufficient for worlds of sinners, the same forever. It does not know progress or progressive development, for it is perfect. Lastly, it is the everlasting gospel because it is the gospel of every age and nation. It is not for one century more than another, but for all. Not for one nation more than another, but for all. It suits the 19th century as truly as the first. Civilized Europe as truly as barbarian Madagascar. It is the gospel of the ages. In every age the same, supplying the same wants, addressing itself to the same kinds of sinners, pardoning the same sins, removing the same fears and sorrows. It is the everlasting gospel. More truly such than the everlasting hills or the everlasting stars. It is a gospel for the sons of men human and yet divine, of earth and yet of heaven. And this gospel is to be enforced in the last days by a special argument. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. The gospel changes not, yet each age furnishes its own potent reasons for receiving it. The last age, the most potent and irresistible of all. Now or never, for the last trumpet is about to sound. Now or never, for the Son of Man is just at hand. That's a beautiful reminder again. As we read the book of Revelation, one of the things I think that happens if we're not careful is, and this I think happens, I mean, in some of the more, maybe more popular interpretations of the book of Revelation today, uh, is that the gospel gets lost. Where is Christ? This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And Christ in his gospel, Christ in his love, but also Christ in his judgment to judge those who refuse to receive the free gift of righteousness. So it's good news. This is a gospel book. and uh, But sometimes it becomes simply a book to try to figure out the political situation of the world or uh, so many other things that are really, I don't think, as edifying as reading it this way. So when we think about it again, reminding us again of that gospel message, so that as you and I read this book, we still have that that gospel focus of the cross in our minds. 
The cross is throughout uh, this book. In fact, the whole book of Revelation is soaked in the blood of Christ. So as we read it, let's not forget that. Let's refresh our minds constantly so that as we read it, we're reading it the way that it would have brought comfort to those first Christians who read it and to Christians, the whole uh, believers in Christ through the whole ages. So here we go. We get we one more reading here. We we go through Revelation chapter fifteen. Uh, interesting. There um, we're told that the, the believers there they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Well, that's that's of course as as Revelation is maybe maybe as much as Hebrews. I would assume full of imagery from the Old Testament. Um, Hebrews and uh, Revelation, the Revelation of John, are both full of Old Testament allusions, as the whole New Testament is, um, but especially Revelation. So that's, of course, a play, a reminder to us. Where, where's the Song of Moses at? Oh, yeah, Exodus chapter 15, that song they sang right after who had been destroyed, Pharaoh and his army in the ocean, in the sea. God delivered them from the hands and the power of Leviathan, from the the serpent uh, expressing himself through the person of Pharaoh and his forces. He del- God delivered his people from that beast, Pharaoh, and triumphed over all the idolatrous gods of Egypt. That's what he said he was coming to do, right? To bring judgment upon the gods of Egypt. And he did that whenever he destroyed them in the sea. And so the people of God here sing the song of Moses. But then lastly here, we have the, the seven bowls of God's wrath. And then I want to read here this verse here, verse 15 of chapter 16. And this will be the last reading we do uh, this week. It says here, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This is uh, Horatius Bonar again, the last thing. He's, this is titled The Swift and Sudden Advent. These words are these these are words specially for the last days. They suit all times, no doubt, for Christ is ever coming. The last trump is ever about to sound. The fire is ever ready to be kindled. The judge is ever at the door. But they suit the last days best and are meant for these. With 1,800 years behind us now, remember he's writing this in the 1800s, we may, not, we may take them home most solemnly to ourselves. First of all, they warn, they quicken, they rouse, and they comfort. First of all, talk, look at the coming. It is the long-promised advent. Christ comes. He comes as avenger, as judge, as king, as bridegroom. The same Jesus that left the earth is about to return to it. Behold, says he to a blind, heedless world. Behold, says he to a cold and slumbering church. I come. He is herald to himself. As a thief at midnight when men are asleep, when darkness lies on earth, when men are least expecting him, when they have lain down saying peace and safety. Behold, I come as a thief without warning, though with vengeance for the world in his hand, when all past warnings of judgment have been unheeded, without further message, for all past messages have been vain. Like lightning, like a thief, like a snare, like lightning to the world, but the son of morning to his church, like a thief to the world, but like a bridegroom to the church, like a snare to the world, but like the cloud of glory to his own. So we have the coming, but second of all, we have the watching. Not believing, nor hoping, nor waiting merely, but watching 
as men do against some event, whether terrible or joyful, of which they know not the time. Waiting was the posture of the Jewish church for the first advent. Watching is ours for the second. Watch, said the master. Watch, said the servants in primitive times. Watch, we say still, for ye know not neither the day nor the hour of his arrival. Watch, for that day is great and glorious. Watch, for ye are naturally disposed to sit down and take your ease. Watch, for Satan tries to lull you asleep. Watch, for the world with its riches and vanities and pleasures is trying to throw you off your guard. Watch upon your knees. Watch with your Bibles before you. Watch with wide open eye. Watch for him whom not having seen you love. Thirdly, so we have the coming, the watching, but thirdly, we have the keeping of the garments. Be like Nehemiah, who, when watching against the Ammonites, did not put off his clothes night or day. Keep your garments all about you, that when the Lord comes, he may find you not naked, but robed and ready. Do not cast off your raiment, either for sleep or for work. Do not let the world strip you of it. Keep it and hold it fast. It is heavenly raiment, and without it you cannot go in with your Lord when he comes. Look at the blessedness as well. Blessed is the watcher. Blessed is the keeper of his garments. Many are the blessed ones. Here is one class, especially for the last days. How much we lose by not watching and not keeping our garments. It is blessed for it cherishes our love. It is blessed for it is the one, it is one of the ways of maintaining our intercourse. It is blessed for it is the posture through which he has appointed blessing to come in his absence to his waiting church. But also lastly, look at the warning. Lest ye walk naked and men see your shame. Shame has three meanings. One, shameful thing or object. Two, the feeling of shame produced by the consciousness of the shameful thing. And three, the exposure to shame and scorn from others. The first of these is specially referred to here, but all the three are connected. Adam was ashamed at being found naked when the Lord came down to meet him. How much more of shame and terror shall be to the unready souls at meeting with a returning Lord? It will be the beginning of shame and everlasting contempt. They shall be put to shame before men and angels. They shall be overwhelmed with confusion before the great white throne. The universe shall see their shame. O false disciple, come out of your delusion and hypocrisy, lest you be exposed in that day of revelation. O sinner, make ready, for the day of vengeance is at hand. That's a very sobering and helpful, I think, reminder to each of us. I don't know about you, um, but it can be very easy to just kind of spiritually speaking, get comfortable and fall asleep and forget the urgency that Christ could literally come at any moment. We need to be reminded of that urgency, uh, not to the point to where we don't work now, but actually that urgency should help us to work diligently, faithfully, um, in a God-honoring way in the, lo- in the vocations and the callings that God has given to each and every one of us. But it also should give us that urgency, right, to preach the gospel to our children, to our, to our family members, to each other in the church, and to those lost people around us that God has put in our pathway um, to share this, this everlasting gospel this everlasting gospel to those people because it is urgent and we want to stay awake. Also, meditating upon the second coming of Christ, we might find, uh, doing two different things actually, meditating first of all on that everlasting gospel that, that we read about earlier, 
but then secondly also about this watching of of he could come anytime if we i think you and i meditated and thought about and reflected and let those things those those two things the watching and the everlasting gospel sink into our hearts I think it would it would produce and the, that those seeds that would and we receive that word. I think if we let the word of God have its way in our hearts and our lives, we would see us living holier, uh, more spiritually healthy lives. Because on the one hand, we realize the urgency of the matter. We realize Christ could come at any time, and we don't want to be ashamed when He comes. But then on the other hand, we're reminded of his everlasting love and gospel and grace that is sufficient for our need to cover every sin of our lives, but also for the sins and to cover um, the, 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 the guilt and the shame of you and me and everyone else around us. And so keeping those two things in mind would probably... I think we, those would be two things that I could work on definitely in my life. And I think that's, that's a helpful reminder too, because this book was meant to be written and be applicable to those first Christians who read it whenever John wrote it in the 90s, 80s, 90s. And those would have been two messages, I think, that they would have received from this book. First of all, that everlasting gospel, the love of Christ for us, but also be watchful, be ready. Those two things would have probably been very, um, and you think about the churches that John wrote those letters to, some of them had become somewhat lackadaisical. And uh, this this message is meant to uh, call us back to repentance, to turn away from those things and back to the love of God in Christ who fuels us and who empowers us uh, to to, uh, live out of gratitude for grace received. Okay, we've got one more week, one more week, and Revelation 18 through 22, it's going to be a lot of fun, Uh, beautiful passages, some of the best portions of God's Word are going to be found here in these last chapters, uh, because they're just so full of, of, uh, uh, full of Christ, aren't they? Full of Christ, full of His, of His love, His love for us. So, thank you for listening to this, and I'll see you next week. Take care. God bless.